0: To give a coherent coherent, unified talk on Don Quixote is a task worthy of Don Quixote himself. We have a history by a moor from whom not a word of truth is to be expected, being from the lot of deceivers, liars, and storytellers. We have a translator who for the price of fifty pounds of raisins and two bushels of wheat promise a good and faithful translation but who has no qualms admitting whole chapters. In addition, we have the editor who hired the translator. And looming above all these, we have the ever-present threat of an evil enchanter. Of course, we should not forget the author of the prologue, who is writing an invective to destroy the evil influence of the books of chivalry. Full of confidence, therefore, I lower my lance, charge the monster, and praise, pray sage and chatter does not change it into a windmill. We are saddened by the death of the lovable Don Quixote, a knight whose life has been devoted to restoring the institution of knight-errantry, in which men are devoted to addressing, redressing wrongs, securing widows, and protecting maidens, that is, the death of knight-errantry and its chivalrous ideals. These ideals, admittedly, are admixed with the outlandish trappings of monsters, magical horses that fly, instant transportation to faraway lands, sage enchanters, and the rest of the inventions of the lying books of knight-errantry. I can't, it's too far away, I can't see it. <clears throat> On the other hand, we are glad, unlike the Duke and Duchess, that Don Quixote will no longer be played the fool, the butt of jokes and cruel pranks. We are relieved, too, that Don Quixote's deathbed conversion has broken the deep depression he has fallen into and has cured him of his madness. His reception of the last sacraments pleases us, too. His conversion, however has the feel of a deus ex machina, resolution. The events of the story don't seem to prepare him for the end. Perhaps we are to see his conversion like that of St. Paul, a sudden, complete reversal. But I want to suggest this afternoon that the episodes of Book 2 do in fact prepare us, prepare Don Quixote and us, um, and should color our understanding of his final rejection of knight errantry. Before turning to the sequence of events in Book Two, I want to contrast Books One and Two. My experience over the years has been that students sense a difference in the two in the Don Quixotes of the two books. Though it may be hard put to put one's finger, it might be hard to put one's finger on just what that difference is. It sounds odd that somehow Don Quixote in book two seems less ridiculous, more mature, and in control, even saner. In book one, Don Quixote is mostly the source of his own misfortunes, and his glorious exploits are manufactured by his imagination. For example, the battle with the windmills, his battle with the Basque, his pummeling at the hands of the wicked men from Yangues, and his liberation of the convicts, all produced by his imagination. He is beset by false but amusing misapprehensions of reality. He sees inns as castles and their wenches as ladies of the court. Wine sacks in the iconic windmills are giants to be defeated. A flock of sheep is an army to be faced. His original helmet with cardboard visor and face guard is eventually replaced with the helmet of Mambrino, in reality, a barber's shaving bowl. Though he has many discourses on the high ideals of chivalry, few of them are explicitly Christian. This in the book one. Rather, the names of Amadis, Gaiaferos, Bellions, Forte Marte, and Palmerin, as well as the names of their horses, swords, ladies, and monstrous foes. Are never far from his lips. And finally, every episode seems to involve Don Quixote and Sancho being beaten, stoned, trampled, and pummeled. In general, phys- physical havoc dominates the action, and we are not spared even the details of the lower functions of life. Book one is also very episodic, with a hardly discernible movement of events. And of course, there are the delightful but seemingly irrelevant tales, such as the tale of inappropriate curiosity and storylines tangentially connected at best to Don Quixote's adventures. For example, the stories of Dorotea, Lucinda, <coughs> Don Fernando, Cardenio, Zareda, and the captive. These all turn out. These all turn out to be interrelated, related, but it's hard to see the connection with Don Quixote. In fact, while Don Quixote looks, on, uh, uh, looks upon at the scene at the end of the book, all these stories come together in a kind of a glorious conclusion. But Don Quixote is just looking on. Did you turn the air on? <laughs> uh, this is a... All right. <clears throat> book two has a very different feel. With a few exceptions, which I will return to, inns or inns, bulls and pigs are just that. Nothing is mistaken for a giant. No person is projected by Don Quixote to be a gallant knight or an inveterate enemy. The episodes that befall him are real. For example, the wedding of Camacho, the battle of the Brayers, and the battle with the knight of Spangles. There are real dukes and duchesses who have actual attendants and ladies-in-waiting who live, what is truly, live in what is truly a castle, adorned with all the accoutrements and trappings described in the books of chivalry. The lions he confront are not transformed into dragons, and Rock Guinart is just a robber. As we'll see, Don Quixote's victories and successes are real, and only once is he on the receiving end of beatings like those so common in Book One. Strikingly, for a large portion of the book, the famous Knights of Yore are not present. Amadis is mentioned over 50 times in Book One, but just once is the name found on Don Quixote's lips during his third sally. With perhaps the exception of the rescue of the Morisco Maiden, while Don Quixote is in Barcelona, every event is directly connected to Don Quixote. In an odd way, the events of book one have more the feel of the real world, despite being contrived in the imagination of Don Quixote. I think that's because of the physical character being beaten. Um, Don Quixote is a lovable, self-deceived madman admirable, however, for his desire to succor widows, protect maidens, and assist the oppressed. In book one, we laugh at him, even when he is being severely cudgelled. But in book two, though we laugh at the jokes pulled on him, we also feel sorry for him, a sentiment that gradually grows in us, especially as we begin to feel annoyance with the Duke and the Duchess. Strangely, we are sorrier in book two for his plight as a knight that is being made fun of than for the multiple beatings and broken ribs he suffers in book one. But what I want to focus on is what I see as a discernible progress in the character of Don Quixote in book two. In book one, in the book I mentioned above It's not episodic. Book one, which I mentioned above, is not episodic, nor are there events that are unrelated to the movement of the book. Some of the things I have touched on here will come out more determinately in what follows. But I will turn now to Don Quixote and we, the readers, but now I will turn to how I think Don Quixote and we, the readers, are prepared for his end. Don Quixote's descent into the cave of Montesinos is the adventure I think marks the turning point of book two in Don Quixote's life. Here he enters a world of magicians, enchanted lovers, and his beloved Dulcinea. A whole talk could be given to just this episode, which I'm not prepared to do. The episode will haunt Don Quixote for the rest of book two. Though professing his conviction that what happened to him was real, nevertheless he harbors a doubt for the rest of the story, as evidenced by his questions to Master Pedro's ape, ape and to the talking head he finds in Barcelona. For my purposes, it is enough to see that Don Quixote enters the fantastical world of the books of chivalry. His ascent from the depths begins, I think, a battle for his sanity. Book two begins with an ep- ep- expedition to see Dulcinea. On the road, Sancho and Don Quixote have a discussion on what it means to be a knight errant. Don Quixote's discourse is, in some measure, like those of book one, but there is a much stronger religious element. Don, Qu- Don Quixote says at one point in his long discourse, So that, oh Sancho, in what we do, we must not overpass the bounds which the Christian religion we profess has assigned to us. We have to slay pride in giants, envy by generosity and nobleness of heart, anger by calmness of demeanor and equanimity, gluttony and sloth by the spareness of our diet and the length of our vigils. Lust and lewdness by the loyalty we preserve to those whom we have made mistresses of our thoughts. Indolence by traversing the world in all directions, seeking opportunities of making ourselves, besides Christians, knights. Here, Don Quixote nearly presents the life of knight errantry as a metaphor for the Christian life. Becoming a famous knight is connected to becoming Christians, though they seem not to be quite equated here. seems to me the emphasis is backwards. We become Christians on our way to becoming knights. In addition, in the whole of the discourse, there is no mention of the names of the knights of old. These are almost completely out of the picture until Don Quixote reaches the cave of Montesinos. So he talked about pagans, all the pagans and the ancient pagans and um, the bigwigs there. But um, he, he doesn't talk about the... No, I'm sorry, that's that's um, down the line. Um, this conversation continues because Sancho wants to drive home a point to Don Quixote. Oh, this that is right. My mind's uh, not working here. Um, yes, yeah, so they are talking all about the pagans of the ancient worlds, but none of the names of the, the uh, knights come up in that whole discourse. After discussing the great pagans of the ancient world, Sancho asks, but now tell me this, those tombs where the bodies of all those bigwigs lie, have they got silver lamps in front of them? And are the walls of their chapels festooned with crutches, shrouds, wigs, and legs and eyes of wax? Don Quixote admits that none of the bigwig pagans were festooned with any such signs. The tombs of their tombs. Sancho continues, that's what I'm driving at. So now you tell me this. So now you tell me this. What's better, bringing a corpse back to life or killing a giant? The answer is plain as day, Don Quixote replies. Sancho exclaims, ah, now I've got you, and gives his reason. And I'm quoting here now. From that, it follows that the fame of man who brings the dead back to life, gives sight to the blind, gets the lame walking, and makes the sick healthy, and who has lamps burning in front of his tombs and his chapel full of devout folk on their knees adoring his relics must be a better sort of fame for this world and for the next than all the fame of all the pagan emperors and knight-errants there ever were and ever will be on the face of the earth. Don Quixote confesses that Sancho is right, and Sancho continues, Since the bodies and the relics of saints have got this fame, this grace, this prerogative, as it's called, and with the approval and permission of our holy mother church, They have lamps, candles, shrouds, crutches, paintings, wigs, eyes, and legs that strengthen people's devotion and spread their own Christian fame. And kings carry the bodies of saints or their relics on their shoulders, kiss bits of their bones, bedeck their oratories, and spruce up their favorite altars with them. At this point, Don Quixote interrupts. What do you want me to infer from all of this, Sancho? Sancho responds, What I'm trying to say is, let's go in for being saints. He then goes on to point out that two recently canonized friars are, quote, more venerated than Roland's sword in the armory of our Lord the King, God keep him. See you, sir, it's better to be a humble little friar of any order than a brave knight errant. And as far as God's concerned, a couple of dozen strokes of the lash are worth more than a couple thousand thrusts of the lance, whether given to giants, monsters, or dragons. That is all true, Don Quixote replied, but we cannot all be friars, and many are the roads along which God leads his people to heaven. Chivalry is a religion, and there are knights our saints in glory. Now, what are we to infer from all of this? Well, there's obviously a dig being made at the superstitious devotions to the saints, the eyes and the wigs and uh, and legs. And it is ironical that it will, in fact, be Sancho's lashings that are to free Dulcinea. In Sancho's mind, mind, there is still a lack of clarity on the import of knight-errantry. He seems to suppose that the payoff will be worldly fame signified with the trappings of the tombs of saints. His line of questioning has forced Don Quixote to see chivalry as a religion with its saints. But has Sancho really succeeded in moving Don Quixote's heart to believe that Roland's sword is less to be venerated than canonized saints who are mere friars. Sancho's association of the equipment of knighthood with the painting, wigs, eyes, and legs of saints is not likely to appeal much to Don Quixote. The pair continue their pilgrimage to El Toboso to pay devotions to the peerless Dulcinea, a figment of Don Quixote's imagination. Arriving, Don Quixote enters the village in the depth of the night, at the stroke of the midnight hour, to seek the castle of his imaginary Dulcinea. In this way do the adventures of Book Two, Don Quixote's third sally begin. We see something of his folly, we see that something of his folly still persists. So that Sancho is able to deceive Don Quixote and to save his skin by convincing him that a country wench is really his beloved lady. Sancho succeeds by persuading him that an evil enchanter is at work, a mistake Sancho will eventually pay for. What is noteworthy is the effort that it takes to get Don Quixote to disbelieve his eyes. In book one, it is more likely that Don Quixote would have fixed on a wench and then had to convince Sancho otherwise. But here, Sancho meets with much resistance. Immediately after leaving El Toboso in a remarkable scene, Don Quixote encounters the Parliament of Death, a caravan of play actors still dressed out in their costumes, He sees a devil, death, an angel, a soldier, a queen, and an emperor. We have here all the ingredients and catalysts that would have provoked the Don Quixote of Book 1 to an immediate attack. His response here is in sharp contrast. For example, to his reaction at the end of Book 1 when he encounters the flagellants in the Uh, transporting a statue of our blessed lady. He perceives the statue to be a real lady in distress and rushes in to rescue her. Here, though, Don Quixote first inquires about the caravan and, when told the truth, is easily contented with the explanation. He says, On my faith as a knight errant, when I saw this cart, I imagine that it heralded some great adventure. And now I do declare that appearances must be examined carefully to discover the hidden truth. It is hard to imagine that Don Quixote, of book one, would have so easily come to his senses. What follows this episode are a string of three victories, real ones, which lead up to his fateful visit to the, with the duke and the duchess, where he will achieve further exploits, though imaginary ones. The first is his encounter with the knight of the Spangles. His victory is real over a challenger whom he has no grounds for suspecting as unreal. He does, however, disbelieve his own eyes when he discovers the knight is actually Sanson Carrasco, who has come to rescue Don Quixote from his madness. In a roost that is bound to work, Sanson, Sanson slights the peerless beauty of Dulcinea. Don Quixote takes up the challenge, agreeing that if he is beaten, he will return home and retire from knight-errantry for a year. Surprisingly, he defeats the knight of the Spangles, but is amazed to find the face of Sanson under the helmet. In his characteristic manner, He accuses an enchanter of trying to rob him of the honor of his victory. Unfortunately, despite his careful examination of the appearances, he fails to discover the hidden truth, and he departs the battle still in the grips of a delusion. The victory, as we know, will come back to haunt him. Sanson, nursing his wounds, says, What's going to make me search him out now isn't any desire for him to recover his senses, but a desire for vengeance. This terrible pain in my ribs doesn't allow me to form any more charitable plans than that. Don Quixote leaves Sanson brooding on his revenge, and we do not see him again until three months later in Barcelona. Flush with victory, Don Quixote next encounters Don Diego Miranda, who recognizes Don Quixote and who takes him, takes him home to be to, takes him to his home to be feted. On the way, a cart bearing two lions to the king crosses his path. Here again, the lions are recognized as lions, not fantastical monsters to be defeated. The madman of Book One, who turns windmills and wine sacks into giants, does not here see anything but lions. His successful encounter with them is his second victory. He takes on a new name, Knight of the Lions, and becomes more convinced that he is a great knight unbeatable in combat. The final victory occurs upon leaving Don Diego's home. Don Diego, excuse me. Don Quixote stumbles upon the wedding of Camacho to the beautiful Quiteria. The wedding does not come off as planned when Basilio, Quiteria's childhood lover, crashes the rite. Feigning death, Basilio tricks Camacho into letting Quiteria exchange vows with him. Once the vows are exchanged, Basilio springs back to life much to the consternation of Camacho and his friends, and to the delight of Basilio's friends. A brawl threatens to break out until Don Quixote steps in with his lance to calm the two sides. And then, not with the force of arms, but with a persuasive argument, he convinces both parties that to go to war over this matter does not befit rational creatures. The two parties relent as a result of Don Quixote's intervention, and the whole affair is happily settled. Here we have the third of the real successes, and they have come in rapid succession. The opening of Book 2 stands in stark contrast to that of Book 1. Don Quixote, though still pursued by enchanters, is more or less in touch with reality. He, is, he has to be convinced to disbelieve his eyes. There have been no windmills, fooling houses, or sheep. He controls himself when approached by a cart of demons, queens, and emperors. In addition, he has not been stoned, beaten with sticks, trampled by sheep, or pummeled by innkeepers. In short, he is on top of the world, ready to take on whatever comes his way. And It is in this frame of mind that he boldly descends into the cave of Montesinos. In doing so, however, he casts himself fully into the world of the books of chivalry, a world so far in this book that has not been on his mind. I can't go into the details of his experiences there, but you will recall that he meets with Montesinos, for whom the cave is named, In answer to Don Quixote's question, Montesinos confirms the truth of the legend that he had taken a small dagger and cut out the heart of his great friend Durandarte and carried it to the Lady Belerma, as Durandarte had ordered him to do as he lay dying. Don Don Quixote goes on to be told of the illustrious knights and lovers bound by the enchantments of Merlin the sorcerer. He actually sees the mummified heart of Durandarte. He later meets up with Dulcinea, who is still under enchantment and hence in the form of a country wench and who refuses to speak with him, though her companion does ask to borrow six reals, Unfortunately, he has only four to give. In effect, Don Quixote has actually entered into one of his books of chivalry. The names and faces of the famous knights of yore, which seemed to occupy so little place in Don Quixote's thoughts up to now, have come fully back to life for him. His mind is once again in the grips of the surreal, fantastical world of the books that drove him mad to begin with. But it is a world that he will become an actual participant in, and not just an observer, as he was in the cave when he comes to the castle of the duke and the duchess. Before coming to the castle, Don Quixote slips twice again into his madness. The first occurs as he watch, watches the puppet play reenacting Don Quixote's rescue of Melisandre from the Moors in Spain. In the midst of the play, Don Quixote is roused to enter the battle at which point he slices all of the puppets to shreds. Coming to his senses, he offers his apologies and, after some dickering, pays generously for the damages he's done. Shortly thereafter, Don Quixote and Sancho come upon what Don Quixote takes to be an enchanted boat. They board it to sail across the wide sea in search of adventures. The watermill they eventually drift toward, and which would destroy the boat and them, Don Quixote insists is a castle in which are imprisoned damsels in need of his assistance. In both of these episodes, we see a Don Quixote more akin to the one of book, to the one of book one, where nearly all of his actions are the result of this kind of misapprehension of reality. We see, too, that he has fallen from the state that we saw at the beginning of this book. The adventure in the cave has affected Don Quixote. Don't Don't take a picture of that. Immediately following these adventures, Don Quixote meets the Duchess, who recognizes him and invites him to her castle. The bulk of book two is spent describing the events that transpired there. When he enters the world of the Duke and Just Duchess, he is met with a reception befitting a true knight errant. Don Quixote is, and I quote, amazed by what was happening, and that was the first day when he was fully convinced that he was a real knight errant, not a fancied not a fantasy one, seeing himself treated in the same way as he'd read that such knights used to be treated in centuries past. When first coming upon this line, line, (coughs) readers are often taken aback. After all, there seems never to have been any doubt in Don Quixote's mind that he was a real knight-errant. But I suggest that the line means that he is convinced he has finally become what he's been aiming at all along, a knight of the stature of Amadis. The rest of his time with the Duke and Duchess does nothing but bolster this confidence in himself. It would be fun to relate all of what happens to Don Quixote while with the Duke and Duchess. Still aiming for high ideals and devoted to works of chivalry, Dante, Don Quixote becomes here the constant butt of pranks and jokes because of his naive acceptance of three contrived scenarios. First, he must protect his chastity and maintain his fidelity to Dulcinea in the face of the advances of Altisidora, the beautiful but dolorous du- duenna, who is madly in love with him. And of course, he must deal with the reactions when she scorned. Second, he must render assistance to the Countess of Trafaldi from the Kingdom of Candy, which boasts of Countess Lupine and Countess Horny, and whose duennas have been cursed by the giant Malambrino, who has adorned their faces with glorious beards. Now, beards give men distinction and gravity makes them especially attractive to women, and mark a philosophical disposition, especially the long gray ones. On women and some men, they just don't have that effect. At any rate, thirdly, Don Quixote must provide guidance for Sancho, who's made governor of the island of Barataria, as a result of Don Quixote's high renown and glorious achievements. These three running jokes provide much entertainment for the duke and duchess and for the reader. But for Don Quixote, they serve only to confirm him in the delusions enkindled in the cave of Montesinos. In addition to these three fabricated situations, Don Quixote must also attend to the real plight of Donna Rodriguez whose daughter has been jilted by the son of one of the duke's subjects, and a wealthy subject. Here in the castle, we see Don Quixote fully engaged in the world of chivalry, fully in the grips of his madness. However, the people and events that he encounters are seemingly real, not figments of his imaginations, as in Book One, nor do they have the dreamlike cor- uh, character that he had in the Cave of Montesinos. Though he may have some doubts whether the experience of con- the Cave of Montesinos were mere- merely dream or real, there is no such doubt in this case. The Duke and Duchess, for the sake of sport, have fixed Don Quixote's place in the pantheon of knight errands. It will not be easy to bring him back from what was begun in that cave. Don Quixote's last victory as a knight errant, his last one, takes place on the day before he departs from the castle. In an effort to right the wrong done Donna, done Donna Rodriguez's daughter, Don Quixote challenges the miscreant to answer for his crimes the duke accepts on the behalf of the lab whom he safely chased away, stashed away. Excuse me. A date is set for the duel, and the king arranges for his lackey uh, Tosilos to stand in for the missing lad and instructs him carefully how to defeat but not kill Don Quixote. To the outrage of the duke and duchess, Tosilos at first sight falls in love with the daughter and claims her for his wife. Don Quixote, proud of his victory, is dismayed when it is discovered that his challenger is not the miscreant who dishonored the daughter. But here again, Don Quixote blames the evil enchanter for the change. Despite everything, Donna Rodriguez and her daughter wisely accept Tosilos, and the affair appears to end happily, except for the furious duke and duchess, whose sport has been spoiled. With this victory, Don Quixote has reached the epitome of his glory as a knight-errant. His sally began with a series series of true victories that bolsters, bolstered his confidence as a true knight, followed by his descent in the cave of Montesinos, where he enters completely the world of chivalry as an observer. Before his arrival at the castle of the duke and duchess, we see evidence of its return to madness with the episodes of the puppets and the enchanted boat, where he becomes a participant in that world, but still one that is the production of his imagination. In the castle, as a result of the machinations of the duke and duchess, Don Quixote becomes a full agent in a world that has every appearance of being real. His successes in that world are crowned by his defense of a helpless maiden truly wronged. At this point, there seems to be no hope for him. In his eyes, he has really revived knight-errantry, and he is the flower of the age. On his journey to the joust, he must be brimming with confidence. Flush with victory and eager to be back on the road, Don Quixote decides to take leave of the Duke and Duchess. Though Don Quixote's time at the castle has been one of success and adulation, the ending is not so sweet. On the morning that Don Quixote is to depart, in front of the cheering crowd and in the presence of the Duke and Duchess, Altisidora, the faux lover of Don Quixote, appears on a balcony to accuse Don Quixote of stealing three nightcaps and two garters. From the balcony, the duke, feigning outrage, says to Don Quixote, it does not seem to me well done in you, Sir Knight, that after having received the hospitality that has been offered you in this very castle, you should have ventured to carry off even three nightcaps to say nothing of my handmaid's garters. It shows a bad heart, and it does not tally with your reputation. Restore her garters, or else I defy you to mortal combat, for I am not afraid of rascally enchanters, changing or altering my features, as they change his who encountered you into those of my lackey, Tosilos. This accusation of being a petty thief and the stinging public rebuke by the duke must have struck deeply into Don Quixote's heart promising to return the three nightcaps it turns out Altisidora didn't realize she was wearing the garters Don Quixote says this is to the duke this damsel by her own confession speaks as one in love for which I am not to blame and therefore need not ask pardon either of her or of your excellence, whom I entreat to have a better opinion of me and once more to give me leave to pursue my journey. Though the Duchess wishes Don Quixote well, we hear nothing of the sort from the Duke. Don Quixote, we read, lowers his head and bows to the Duke and rides out of the castle. From here on, Don Quixote is beset by one humiliation after another. These will magnify the sting of his defeat in Barcelona at the hands of Sanson Carrasco in the guise of the Knight of the white moon. His travel back to his village after that defeat will make matters even worse, as we will see. We are told, however, that once out in the open, Don Quixote's spirits revive for the fresh pursuit of his chivalrous goals. The journey of Don Quixote to Saragossa, he's not yet decided to go to Barcelona, begins in a way reminiscent of the start of his pilgrimage to El Toboso. The two come across about a dozen farmers sitting on a green meadow surrounded by sheets covering four large objects which are which turn out to be large ornate images of saints being taken to, to be altarpieces of the local church unlike what would probably have happened in book 1 don quixote does not mistake these four knights in captivity does not mistake these for knights in captivity in need of rescue rather we hear don quixote's discourse over the images saint george saint james the moor killer St. Martin, and St. Paul are praised by Don Quixote as the bravest saints and knights who once lived in the world. Each are eulogized as knights who best fought the chivalrous fight, whose deeds won them renown, and more importantly, the eternal reward for which the true knight-errant strives. Don Quixote tells Sancho, I consider it a good omen, my friend, to have seen what I have just seen, because these saintly knights professed, as I myself profess, the exercise of arms. He adds, So far, I do not know what I conquer by force of toils, but if my Dulcinea del Toboso were to be delivered from her own toils, it could well be that my luck would change and my understanding would improve, and I should direct my steps along a better road than I'm following at present. This episode appears to show that Don Quixote has made a step in the right direction and out of his madness. However, he's still entangled in the fiction of Delcinea. Unless she be freed, he will not direct his steps on a better road and be freed from his madness. And the key to breaking the spell is to break the enchantment of Dulcinea. Unfortunately, but perhaps providentially, Don Quixote's recovery of his spirits are not followed up with a string of successes as we saw in the first part of book two. Rather, Don Quixote enters an idyllic rural scene where he is ensnared in the traps of beautiful shepherdesses, Discovering who he is, they bring him to sumptuous, plentiful, and spotlessly clean tables. He is given pride of place, as all stand in amazement of him, singing his praises, echoing the words Don Quixote heard while while with the Duke and Duchess. In gratitude, and not out of pride, he assures us, Don Quixote positions himself in the center of the highway, prepared to defend in the face of all comers the honor of these fair maidens. He is not prepared, however, for the unclean and filthy bulls and bullocks that soon trample him. Unable to do anything about it, he and Sancho leave behind this make-believe Arcadia, quote, feeling more shame than satisfaction. That night, Don Quixote reflects on the episode, I was born, Sancho, to live dying, and thou to die eating. And to approve the truth of what I say, look at me, printed in histories, famed in arms, courteous in behavior, honored by princes, courted by maidens. And after all, when I look forward to palms, triumphs, and crowns, won and earned by my valiant deeds, I have this morning seen myself trampled upon, kicked and crushed by the feet of unclean and filthy animals. Here we see that Don Quixote's first temptation to return to the life of chivalry has been successfully squashed by a herd of bulls rather than encouraged by a successful venture. It accomplishes the same end as the humiliating end to his adventures at the castle he is reduced to shame again. This theme will continue, for there is no respite in store for Don Quixote. The next humiliation Don Quixote to suffers is of a different kind, but must have been no less distressing. Coming to an inn, inn which Don, Qu- <clears throat> Don Quixote recognizes as an inn, he discovers the existence of the false second history that has been written about him, he is so disturbed that he alters his plans. Rather than to Saragossa, he will go to Barcelona to win his fame in the jousts there. As he sets out from the inn, he urges Sancho, a bit too strongly, to begin the lashes that he believes will disenchant Dulcinea. In fact, he decides that he will untie the Gordian knot of Dulcinea's cap- t- captivity, by administering to Sancho the thirty the 30,000 lashes. Sancho objects, and a scuffle ensues, which ends with Sancho on top of Don Quixote, pinning his arms to the ground with a knee in his chest, in short, in complete control. What, you traitor? You defy your own natural lord? You raise your hand against the man who feeds you? Don Quixote bellows. Sancho's victory must be utterly humiliating, perhaps even more so than Don Quixote's defeat at the hands of the Knight of the white moon. An honorable defeat by a peer compares in no way to the dishonor of a defeat by one's natural inferior and his own trusty squire, no less. What shame Don Quixote must have felt looking up into Sancho's face. The irony here is rich. Don Quixote has just said that only on the release of Dulcinea can he set himself on another road. He attempts to take into his own hands what only Sancho can do. Only by the lashes Sancho suffers will Dulcinea be freed. Wasn't it Sancho that pointed out to Don Quixote at the very beginning of this book that lashes will achieve more than the thrusts of a thousand lances? Here, Don Quixote suffers humiliation from the one man he believes can free Dulcinea. Again, there's no success to follow. Rather, immediately ensues another humiliation. When Sancho lets Don Quixote up, he becomes entangled in the limbs of a hanged robber. As Don Quixote rouses himself, they are surrounded and captured by rogue Guinard's merry band of robbers. As Roque arrives on the scene, he notices Don Quixote's forlorn and dejected face. Don Quixote rejects Roque's attempts to console him. My sadness is not caused by having fallen into your power, but by having been so negligent that your soldiers caught me horseless, whereas I am obliged by the order of knight-errantry that I profess to be always on the alert at every moment of the day my own sentry. The discovery of Altatissidora's three nightcaps as the roppers ransack Sancho's belongings could not have been a welcome sight. In short order, then, Don Quixote has been disgraced by the Duke, trampled by bulls, overcome by S- <coughs> Sancho, and caught unarmed. In book one, His sanity is constantly questioned, but never his character or his honor assaulted. And there is no attempt by Don Quixote to mitigate these shames by blaming evil enchanters. Don Quixote bears the full brunt of the attacks on his honor as a knight, and his pride in himself as the flower of chivalry has taken a severe beating. At this point, Don Quixote does not have much left except the jousts at Barcelona, where he might recover some of his dignity. Don Quixote's prearranged triumphal entrance <coughs> excuse me, um, could have easily restored something of his status as the flower of chivalry. Like his reception to the Duke and Duchess's castle, Don Quixote is greeted as though the stories about him were true and worthy of adulation. But his reception is immediately marred when Rocinante, aggravated by various spurs put on the underside of his tail, bucks Don Quixote from its back in front of the adoring crowd. Shamed and humiliated, Don Quixote removes the spurs and remounts his gallant steed. In the midst of another parade through, through the city, Don Quixote, riding on a mule and unwittingly bearing a parchment on his back announcing his name, is publicly reviled and cursed by a man from Castile. The devil take you, Don Quixote de la Mancha. How on earth have you managed to survive as long as this and not died from all those beatings you've been given? You're a madman. If you'd have been mad by yourself and behind closed doors of your own insanity, it would have been not have been so bad. But you have the ability to turn everyone who has anything to do with you mad and stupid just like you. And if you don't believe me, you can confirm it in these people riding with you. Go back home, you fool, and look after your property and your wife and children and drop all this nonsense that's eating your brain away and skimming all your wits off your mind. This very public rebuke draws no response from Don Quixote, nor does the Castilians' subsequent attack on knight errantry. Such silence from Don Quixote in Book One would have been almost unthinkable. Here, as in the previous humiliations, Don Quixote does not shift the blame to enchanters. Don Quixote's defeat by the knight of the white moon will be acutely felt because of the accumulation of the weeks of unrelenting, shameful, and humiliating experiences leading up to it. After his defeat, Don Quixote stayed in bed for six days, dejected, depressed, broody, and in the worst of spirits, turning the disastrous events of his defeat over and over in his mind. And it's no wonder. But Don Quixote's trip home from Barcelona provides no relief. The humiliations only continue. He first encounters Tosilos, the Duke's lackey, who reveals that what appeared to be a successful conclusion to Don Quixote's intervention on behalf of Donna Rodriguez's daughter was, in fact, a disaster. Tosolos, instead of being wedded to Donna Rodriguez's daughter, was given a hundred strokes of birch for diso- disobeying the duke's order. Dona Rodriguez was dismissed from the duchess's service and sent back to Castile, and her daughter was retired to a nunnery. Now this encounter happens on the very spot where Don Quixote was trampled by bulls, and it tempts Don Quixote to trade his life as a knight-errant for the indolent life of Arcadia where his time would be spent whiling away the hours bemoaning his misfortune of being the lover of a cruel, heartless maiden. In short, he would take up the life of a spurned lover who Marcella condemns in Book 1. There, Don Quixote champions Marcella by preventing her many suitors from pursuing the fleeing maiden. Instead of striving for the noble deeds of chivalry, Don Quixote is tempted to take on the antics of Sierra Moreno, and be, and, which would become then his modus vivendi, his way of life. Next, this very same spot where he had suffered the indignity of being trampled by the bull, bulls now becomes a place of another humiliation. A grunting, stampeding herd of unclean animals appear from nowhere, to overrun Sancho and Don Quixote. As in the case of the bulls, the unclean and vile swine are not mistaken for an army, nor is the misfortune chalked up to the work of enchanters. Rather, this affront, he says, is a chastisement for my sin. The evil continues the very next morning when Sancho and Don Quixote are surrounded and captured by about 15 armed men. At the prodding of lances, the two are forced to march in silence while enduring verbal assaults. Get on, you troglodytes. Silence, you barbarians. March, you cannibals. No murmuring, you Scythians. Don't open your eyes, you murderous polyphemes, you bloodthirsty lions. When Don Quixote realizes that the castle to which they are being marched is that of the duke's, His his inglorious departure must have come to mind. Upon entering the castle, Don Quixote and Sancho come upon Altisidora lying upon a catafalque. She is supposedly dead from Don Quixote's rejection of her love. So begins the last of the Duke and Duchess's hoaxes. After something of a pageant, the dead Altisidora is brought back to life thanks to the pinpricks, pinches, and phillips endured by Sancho at the hands of the duenas of the castle. The next day, as Altisidora is about to renew her plaints, Don Quixote peramps her with a speech spurning Altisidora's suit. At this point, Altisidora breaks character. Good God, you cold codfish, with a soul like a granite mortar, and a heart like datestone, more stubborn and unyielding than any peasant once he's made up his mind. Just let me get at you, and I'll tear your eyes out of your head. You aren't by any chance imagining, are you, you defeated and cudgeled wretch, that I di- died because of you? Everything you saw last night was a sham. I'm not a woman to let so much as my little finger ache for an old camel like you, let alone die for one. Again, Don Quixote has no response to this rebuke. He makes no appeal to enchanters to explain away a speech, nor does he challenge the assertion that all that he had seen the night before was a sham. The comparisons to a peasant and an old camel and the reminder of his being defeated and cudgeled knight could not have been pleasant to hear. Don Quixote begs to take leave of the Duke and Duchess that very day. The request granted, Don Quixote dresses, dines with them, and leaves the castle for the last time. This episode is the last of his adventures as a knight errant. After his return from the cave of Montesinos, the assaults on Don Quixote's honor as a knight received no reprieve from any successes he could claim as his work, perhaps with the exception of the resolution of Donna Rodriguez's predicament. But any pretensions about that victory are dashed by Tosilos on the way back home. In fact, as Don Quixote's success Successes, successes recede Sancho Ponzos come to the fore in fact from the time of the cave of Montesinos Sancho Panza Sancho Panza has really been the true instrument of rescue it is he whose lashings will free Dulcinea from enchantment the pinpricks, pinches and phillips he endures are what bring Altisidora back to life the beards and the duennas and the Countess Trivaldi cannot be removed unless he mounts Cavaleno. And there is, of course, his wise and judicious governing of his island, much to the astonishment of all those in on the hoax. He is also more closely connected to the affair of the Morisco maiden, the disguised captain of the pirate ship captured while Don Quixote and Sancho are in Barcelona. Sancho attests to the Viceroy that the cross-dressed captain is indeed Anna Felix, the daughter of Ricote, Sancho's neighbor. Finally, on the way back to his village after his defeat at the hands of the Knight of the White Moon, Don Quixote is approached by some townsmen who wish to... Who wish him to settle a dispute about two racers, one of whom is much heavier than the other. Before he can answer, Sancho jumps in to resolve the dispute. By all that's holy, this gentleman has spoken like a saint and given judgments like a canon," says one of said one of the farmers. The farmers invite Don, Sancho and Don Quixote to a tavern for some of the best wine. Sancho, or excuse me, Don Quixote responds, gentlemen, I am grateful to you, but I cannot stop at this for an instant because certain sad thoughts and sad events oblige me to appear discourteous and to depart without delay. He then spurs Ronsonante on, leaving the men amazed. Sancho is not the only one who supplants Don Quixote. While Don Quixote is with Rock Guinart, the maiden Claudia Geronima comes seeking assistance. It is Rock who goes to help, while Don Quixote stays behind and tries to persuade the band of robbers to give up their outlaw ways. In addition, later in Barcelona, a pirate ship is captured, which it turns out is captained by a Morisco maiden, escaped from the Turks. Her lover, however, Don Gaspar Gregorio, dressed as a woman, remains behind, captive in the hands of the Turk. Despite Don Quixote's pleas, the renegade is commissioned to is commissioned to rescue Don Gregorio. After this, Don Quixote, right after this, Don Quixote is defeated by the Knight of the White Moon. It must have really hurt that imme- immediately following his defeat, Don Quixote sees the, rene- the renegade return successfully from his mission. Sid Hammett begins his conclusion Since what is not human, is not eternal, but is in continuous decline from its beginning to its conclusion. This being particularly true of men's lives, and since Don Quixote's life had not been granted any special privilege by heaven to halt the course of its decline, it reached an end when he was least expecting it. Because either out of the depression brought on by his defeat or by divine ordination, he was seized by a fever that kept him in bed for six days. So began Sid Hammett's account of Don Quixote's last days. But these are the words of a non-believer. What he sees as a litany of disasters are really the hands of Providence at work. Don Quixote is allowed to enter fully into the world of the books that he reads, that he read so avidly and led him into madness. From them, he learned the noble ideals of chivalry, but he was also engulfed by the fantastical, the giants and peerless beauties, the enchanters and sages, the bejeweled swords and magical horses. These overwhelmed and smothered the ideals of chivalry. What were to be adornments to the truly beautiful seemed to have replaced the noble aims of succoring widows, defending maidens' honor, punishing the wrongdoers, and rescuing those in need. In need became outlandish exploits to win the honor for the doer of them. The noble words we hear from Don Quixote in the opening conversation with Sancho on the road to El Toboso, and indeed throughout both books, reveal what is really at the heart of Don Quixote's desire to revive the institution of knight errantry. There's no question, I think, about that fact. It is what makes Don Quixote so lovable and admirable in our eyes. The work is full of instances when Don Quixote's wisdom shines through despite his madness. And numerous characters remark on the paradoxical conjunction of his wisdom and his madness. What Don Quixote must learn is to disengage the true from the false, the good from the evil, the real from the fantastical. The sequence of events of Don Quixote's last sally are so rightly arranged that they show Don Quixote the shame of his madness. His madness is cured because he was allowed to prosper, to achieve success and victories, and to come to believe himself a knight worthy of the company of the knights he so admired. Amadis, Gaiferos, Billions, Forti Marte, Pelmeren. However, he was reminded at crucial times in various ways of the true knights, the St. George's, St. Martin's, the St. James, and St. Paul's. In the cave of Montesinos, and the castle of the Duke and Duchess, he is permitted to enter the books of chivalry he so ardently desires, and he does so in a fuller way than we see ever in Book One. All of this in preparation for his chastisement. He is shamed regarding the element most dear to the heart of knight errants, his honor. He discovers that lowly squires, common thieves, and moriscos can accomplish deeds thought to be the proper domain of knight errands. Now we can see, I think, Don Quixote's rejection of chivalry in a different light. First, the conversion is not deus ex machina. Rather, it's been carefully planned for. Second, the rejection is not so all-encompassing as it might seem on the face of it. The ideals of chivalry are not rejected, but the lying books that in effect trivialize them are. Knights become saints once again, No more jolly, red-suited men and their elfish squires. No more popping down and up chimneys, knowing who's naughty and nice and being able to be in thousands of malls at once. Banished, too, the Rudolphs with their red noses lighting the way of a sleigh that magically flies through the night air, visiting all the places in the world in one night. Perhaps Don Quixote has rediscovered the saint who, rec- who succors widows, feeds the hungry, brings life and love to all. The world has lost a great night. The world lost a great night the day Don Quixote died. What exploits and great deeds would he, now purified, had been able to accomplish. Would the world have been bettered by his exploits? One hopes so, but with him gone, the task now belongs to other knights, perhaps to Sancho, his dutiful squire, and perhaps to us, his faithful readers.